Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Today, I'd like to welcome John Zogby. He is a senior partner at John Zogby Strategies. It's a full-service market research political consulting firm that provides a wide range of opinion services. John has been featured on all the networks as an election analyst. He has also been published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and other publications around the world. And he's also the author of three books, and I understand a new manuscript that we're going to talk about today as well. So welcome, John. Thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Darcy. I've been looking forward to this. You know, I'm curious, you have a bachelor's degree in history. And so I want to know, how did you, what's your journey to get to polling and opinion research? And what are some of the pivotal or aha moments you've had along the way? Two strands. One is um, as a history student and then historian, always fascinated by elections, all the details of elections. As I got older, as I was developing, the polling industry was developing. And I was amazed and those days in the late 60s, 70s, the accuracy, Gallup and Harris and Roper, just amazing to me that that could be done, you know, with relatively small samples. And at the same time, I'm a left-wing political activist on campus and then in my hometown, upstate New York, ultimately leading me to run for mayor of my little city, Utica, New York. I lost, but I did a poll with my students. And this is absolutely true. I knew exactly how much I was going to lose by. And I thought, um, this is fun. I'd rather be right than president, to quote uh, a former vice president of the United States. And so there I was. I left teaching, took a job as as an Arab American uh, organizer, afforded me the opportunity to meet a lot of people. And then within a few years, started my consulting practice But even then, 1984, the one thing that I did that was unique that no one else was doing was polling in local races, you know, presidential, gubernatorial, U.S. Senate, the bigger races, Congress. But nobody was polling the sheriff and the and and the town supervisor and the county executive. And so I sort of grabbed that market for myself back then. It's interesting. So what was it about polling that really attracted you? Or I guess, uh, you know, elections and polling, what what was it that really attracted you at that time? You know, to any good researcher, I think you want accurate data coming in. But, you know, as an historian, I want a story that emerges. And this was a perfect blend. Here I was able not simply to learn and then subsequently tell a story, but to have good data to back it up. You know, to not live only on conjecture alone, but to be able to ground those stories, those lessons, those answers to questions, those speculations, those projections into the future with hard data. And so for me, it was it was like a perfect marriage. So to a layman who may not know polling versus surveys and stuff, how would you describe polling to them? Well, polling is the act of seeking public opinion, you know, in, a, in its uh, broadest sense, 
uh, no matter who the demagogue is or who the king is or who the the city manager is, what are the people thinking? You know, and there are a multitude of ways of, of getting at that. You send precinct captains out, you send uh, the folks around you out and talk to a few people, come back to me, what are the folks thinking? Polling, you know, in the last almost century now is a scientific way of gathering public opinion, random probability sampling, you know, using the right method and the right form, the ability to ask fair, balanced questions, you know, and to be able to draw from the public, not only how many support or oppose or how many feel one way or feel another way, but also there's frequency, but there's also intensity. And that's what I think that opinion polling gets at. So I'm able to measure not if you support or oppose a policy, but do you strongly support somewhat support somewhat opposed strongly opposed we get levels of intensity too because that drives people's behavior even more so than frequency so you're known for accurate polling analysis and insights and especially in the world of american politics so i'm curious you've been doing this for over 30 years how has your approach changed over the years well i'm going to grab a prop here you see this that is a landline telephone when i started do you remember these Oh yeah. <laughs> when, when I started in 1984, 96, almost 97% of American households had a landline telephone. Uh, let's call that everybody. In addition to that, socially and culturally, when I started, there was a sense that it's a courtesy to answer the phone. Shh, somebody's calling me from New York with a lot of questions. This is important. They want to know my opinion. So we had uh, uh, 65% response rates. So 97% had the phones, people socially and culturally answered the phone. At that point in 1984, the so-called answering machine was still a novelty. And so obviously what's changed is technology on one hand, but also the fact that fewer people are home, fewer people are home at the dinner hour, women are the fastest growing element and have been in the workforce, and so they're not around. Uh, it's no longer deemed impolite, it's standard. If you don't answer the phone, that's an invasion of privacy. So you've got both of these strains going. One is the technology, is saying fewer people have landlines. So, I mean, we're at a point now where 70 plus percent of the telephones in this country are cell phones. Talk about invasion of privacy. Get a call on your cell phone. That's 10 times worse than if you're sitting at home and can ignore it. But also the fact that ignoring the telephone has become fairly standard. Well, now everybody else has caller ID too, right? So that, that makes that's a big hurdle too. <laughs> it, it, it really is. And so in our case, we have over the last 23 years started researching and developing the online poll. We were ahead of the game in that. There were early difficulties, but now among likely voters, 94% of likely voters have internet access 
either at home or via the second prop, the mobile phone. And we are able to reach them with reasonable response rates, either directly by phone or more than likely text to web. I'll send you a message saying, if you'd like to take the survey, here's a secure website. It can't be gamed, you can't forward it. And it is a, a good research tool. Most of our polls are conducted uh, via online in some way, shape, or form. And so how difficult is it to basically get a cross-section uh, representative sample now, or, or is it actually easier? Okay, in some respects, it's easier because there's been a democratization of the mobile phone and the internet. And texting or emailing someone, inviting them to a survey is not only less invasive, but it also enables them to take it at their own leisure. So, all right, I got a survey to do. I can't do it right now, but I'll do it later. And so we get a lot of people who take surveys after 11 p.m. local time. In addition to that, in the old days, you couldn't call anybody on holidays, to be sure. Now, tongue-in-cheek, that's a prime time. You have, believe it or not, lots of people out there who've had it up to here with family by about two or three o'clock on, on Christmas Day or New Year's Day, or so, and they can't wait to go to their own room or their own place or sit in the car and answer a survey. I'm being a little facetious. But the point is the, the society and culture has changed, as has the technology. Bottom line, our studies find we get a better distribution of our sample online than we do traditional uh, our telephone. However, there are some surveys we still have to do by, by telephone, just by virtue of if I'm doing a smaller community, then I have to rely on the, on the telephone. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing uh, larger sample sizes as well? Are you actually doing larger sample sizes than you used to before? We can. Yeah, uh, I mean, normally we're doing, you know, the usual 1,000 or 1,200 or so for a nationwide survey, a little less for statewide or market-wide, regional market surveys. But no, we have the capacity online to, in 72 hours, uh, get a sample of 10,000 consumers or 10,000 voters. It all depends on how many we decide to invite. The invitation is we have tens of millions of email addresses and or cell phone numbers for texting purposes. Uh, where the science comes in, that, those samples are already representative geographically, by race, by gender, education, and so on. What we'll do is we'll do, then do a random probability sampling of those millions and then invite, say, 10,000 to do the survey. And so that's where the random sampling comes in. In the last couple of national elections in the U.S., there's been, it seems, a disconnect between polling and results, election results. What do you think is behind this disconnect? Okay, there's a lot of things, but I, I can tell you, I did not poll 2016. I did poll 2020 and I nailed it. But I will start with 2016 because I, I can be totally objective. The, the polls were fine. It was pundits that just either didn't know how to read them or didn't want to read them. Now, allow me a, a, a minute here or so, but if you looked at the conglomeration of polls nationally and in the battleground states, 
there were direction signals that were as clear as clear can be. Take the battleground states. If you looked at the sun two Sundays before the election, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, uh, Florida, with the exception of Florida, you saw Hillary leading by 9, 10, 11 percentage points. And daily, as new polls came out, you saw her lead dwindling each day to the point where the day before the election, what you saw was either Trump leading in North Carolina or Hillary's lead dissipating from 11 to 3 in Pennsylvania or 12 to 2 in Michigan. Point being, a seasoned observer would look at that and say, the trajectory is wrong here for Hillary Clinton. Something is about to happen. Not quite sure, but it looks like something is happening. That's how I interpreted it in all my writings. The pundits expect the polls to be dead on. In other words, if the poll comes out and says Hillary Clinton is ahead by two points in New Hampshire, that means she's got to win by two points in New Hampshire. And no, you've got to look more sophisticated and look at, you know, be nuanced. In other words, there were direction signals that were very serious in those polls. And the same thing with 2020. Uh, some, some polls just blew it. I mean, ABC News a few days before the election had uh, Joe Biden leading by 17 points in Wisconsin. Well, that's a bad poll. And those do happen. Uh, I know I've done a bad poll here or there over the last 38 years. It, it does happen. But by and large, I think the polls behaved well in 2020 as well. I think the real challenge also with polls is not just that, you know, that is uh, what are, are people leaning one way or the other in terms of the candidates, but it's hard to predict how many are actually going to show up to vote, right? That is so very true. There are signals, but this is the artistry in our business is getting what is called the turnout model. You know, so, I mean, if we're pure scientists and are not talking to the press or at least a one dimensional press, what we're doing is saying, well, under these circumstances, if the black turnout is 10% of the total and the young turnout is 15% of the total, this is what's going to happen. On the other hand, if the black turnout is 12% and the young voters are 17%, here's what's going to happen. That's for a sophisticated media and a sophisticated media that wants to impart information. But if we're playing the Kentucky Derby here alone, and so-and-so is going to win by a length. Well, if he wins by two lengths, the, the odds makers were wrong. So, but yeah, it, we are standing on tectonic plates here. Remember, remember 10 to 14% tell us that they make up their minds on election day. So yeah, we got a lot going on here in the field, but it's still a good one. Sure. I mean, everybody's looking for some type of indication as to what's going to happen and uh, get a little bit of uh, insight into the future. In polling, when you ask someone a yes, no question, you can't gauge the level of a respondent's yes or no. And you can't hear from those who can't say yes or no. As a result of this limitation, do you think that polling has led to a more divided country? You know, that's a very good question. First of all, I never ask yes, no agree, disagree, 
believe, not believe. What I want to know is a Likert scale. Do you strongly agree? Some would agree. Some would disagree. Strongly disagree. Or don't you have enough information? Make a judgment. It offers the respondent a range. But from that question alone, I'm able to get an agree to disagree ratio, whether it's a majority or or not a majority. But I'm also able to measure degrees of intensity. If most of the folks who agree strongly agree, and fewer of those who disagree strongly disagree, I'm going to say the strongly agrees have it. When it comes to you know, some of the really hot button issues of the day, guns, always gay marriage, uh, to be sure, abortion, I look at not only, let's say, the 57, 58% who are pro-choice, but I also look at the strongly pro-life. And if that is stronger than the number who are strongly pro, uh, pro-choice, then I know that high intensity group is going to dictate this issue. They're going to dictate the terms of the election. They're going to be on the offensive. That tells me a whole lot more than the simple uh, percentage of agree, disagree. So I don't use two point questions, agree, disagree. Yeah, I was just giving that example. But I mean, I think what we're trying to say is that there's more finite choices. And a lot of it depends on, I guess, the wording of the choices that are given in the survey. And that's, that's where the art comes in as well. But you do both qualitative and quantitative. So I'm wondering, how do you strike the balance? And I think you see, you, I think you told me you have a preference for one or the other, right? I do, just in terms of liking it. Remember, I'm a historian. I like stories and I like people to tell the stories. But I do quantitative research for, for purposes of accuracy. So if you're telling me a story, well, what's your context? I mean, are you telling me something from the point of view of, 10% of the public agreeing with you? Or are you telling me something from the vantage point of 60% agree with you? So, you know, you need those numbers. By the same token, in terms of conducting our work, I, I love focus groups. I love one-on-one interviews. I love to be able to engage people to flesh out not only their feelings, but what drives them. One thing I, I particularly like that few of us really do, is I look at a person and I don't ask, who are you today? That's a part of it. But I want to know, who do you want to be? Tell me what your aspirations are. So whether I'm counseling a mentee or interviewing someone who is an influencer in their community, I don't simply want to know, how do you see yourself, your community, your product today? How do you envision it? 10 years down the road. How do you, uh, for mentees, what do you want to, what do you see yourself being at the age of 35? What are you doing at 52? That tells me something and also helps me then engage them in strategies to get to those benchmarks. So give me an example. What type of insight have you gleaned when you've asked questions like that to, to people? All right. Let's go back to the bailout. All right. And politics is. Uh, to not only get a sense of who are you voting for today, but what do you see happening over the next 10 years? And paint me a picture of what your world looks like. Where are you in 10 years? How did you get there from there to here? 
did you follow a path or is it an accident? Project yourself into the future. And that gives me then an idea of not only what, well, I don't know if people use levers anymore, I guess it's all touch screens now, but when they vote, what's, what's really behind that vote? Or is there nothing behind that vote except eeny, meeny, miny, moe? Same thing with products and brands though, I have to say. I ask a lot of open-ended questions and I, I want to know how important a brand is, what it says to you, what it speaks to you. How does it relate not only to where you are right now, but to where you want to be? You've also written uh, the book uh, about the transformation of the American dream. How has the American dream been transformed post-COVID? Yeah, that's interesting because when I wrote the book, of course, it was 14, 15 years ago. And what I, I identified then was a growing number of people, whether they had you know, made it sufficiently financially in their lives or had come to the realization that they just weren't anymore. They were moving towards a new spirituality to define the American dream, self-fulfillment, living authentically and so on. In many ways, I think that that has accelerated. I don't believe the American dream is dead. I do believe that the American dream that's defined exclusively in materialistic terms, I want the big house, I want the pool, I want the grand vacations, I want the Ivy League schools, I want to be the CEO. I think that that's either been put on hold or become less relevant in people's lives. And what they see instead is tamp that part of me down. How do I live authentically? How do I live a, a real life with real expectations that allows me then to leave this earth and say, hey, I did something. I feel fulfilled. I call that the secular spiritualism, very much alive today. Are you seeing that across all age groups or certain age groups more so than others? I saw it particularly in two age groups this was 15 years ago. I saw, first of all, among boomers who had reached that point in their lives where a lot of things were going on, bordering and then into old age and then asking the question, is this all there is? Maybe I, I was living in a decent place. Maybe I was in a good place financially, but is this all there is? Another aspect of it was, all right, we work and pushed for civil rights. But that's when I was 19. You know, I'm 71 now. Is there not a second act for me? How, how, how much longer can you go on with what you did 50 years ago? And there was also, you know, a certain jaded aspect to it. I'm not going to be CEO, you know, and I'm not going to have the big swimming pool. And so there are other things. Fourth great awakening is, is what one author called it. But I also saw it particularly among millennials at the time. And this is before Gen Z. But among millennials, that sense that we're in a minefield. So much of this world is good, has been good to us. But there's no sense of permanence here. You know, I, I can't dream about getting that dream job and saying, I'm going to be doing this for 30 years. Permanence has left me. I have to leave permanence. I have to steer my way through. And so for them, and this happens to be true and true with the, the younger group of, of Gen Z, how do I make this earth a better place? How do I use my agency? And, and you see 
among young people that when they're when they're hired, whether it's a gig or a job, I mean, it is a demand. They want corporate social responsibility. They want to work for good citizens. They want time to be able to work in their community or because they're so highly networked, they want to be able to contribute in some way to people who are suffering, who now they can see like we couldn't at their age. And so, uh, yeah, it is generationally inclined, but I, it's becoming more universal as boomers take over. Um, the millennials are just so large and now Gen Z is even driving this even further. Yeah, I've talked to quite a few young people, and I think those who have lived through the 2008-2009 financial crisis and then COVID, and now, you know, we're in an environment where there's an invasion of another country and uh, yeah. the prospect of a war. I think that's really heightened the focus on, you know, doing something uh, purposeful, meaningful in their life. And, uh, and I'm just curious, in real time, when you're in your polling currently, are you seeing these changes even more so with the current environment, with what's going on with the yeah. invasion? Yeah. And the good thing is that it's not uh, the world has gone to hell in a handbasket kind of result. It's much more encouraging than that. There is a sense this is an old world that's passing, that in many ways, this Russian invasion, that's so 75 years ago, so 100 years ago. I mean, we're, they are seeing it. But you see them being active about it, whether it means making a couple of clicks and sending a, a contribution or teaming up with young people and marching, talking about it on social media. I mean, let's look at Gen Z and millennial uh, influencers. In many ways, the ones that we know about appear so incredibly selfish and self-centered. But the reality is, they are helping to lead a revolution. David Beckham, not a millennial, but here's a guy who turned his whole, uh, what is it, 2.4 million? I think it's more than that, actually. However many followers over to President Yaroslavsky uh, of, of Ukraine. Yeah, I think it's incredible what's happening. I think you're absolutely right. There's, a, there's much more vested interest and engagement with trying to make a change with social media and the internet now with what's going on with this invasion? I learned years ago, because I've been studying millennials since after 9-11, that they don't see the other when they look at young people overseas. So that was a different, when we were marching for civil rights, we were marching for them, but they're marching for us. They're contributing to us. Hey, these kids listen to the same music. They talk the same language they dress in the same clothes you know they're we don't want to be supporting a war against people just like us they are us they're not them yeah i want to switch gears for a second to your new manuscript it's called polling alone finding those moments of clarity tell me what this manuscript is about and what inspired you to write it well for starters uh my grandchildren you know, at some point, uh, cleaning out a closet or something, I'd like my grandchildren and their grandchildren that if they ever see the name John Zogby, you know, instead of saying, who was he? Here it is right here. So in this way, in this one book, and so it, it's not really an autobiography or a memoir. It's a professional study of the kind of work that I did, especially 
the projects, uh, the myriad of projects that worked, that helped people, that had those, and you know these well, those aha moments, those moments of clarity. And so it wasn't just a poll that I got right in an election. It was going into a school district where there were low expectations for performance and identifying what that was and how to root it out and creating a strategic plan so that now there's an 88% graduation rate. There are links with a local community college that kids can earn college credit during their senior year, that the expectations are higher. Or projects like that, 21,000 college students worldwide in the laureate education system and asking them, what's the university of the future look like? And they're coming back and telling me, oh my God, there are no textbooks. That teaching is upside down. They want the professors as mentors. They want the, the, the doers, the practical people who are out in the field. They want them teaching. They want more control over their own education, their own curriculum. And this is what they expect. This isn't what they think about or say, oh, wouldn't it be nice? This is what they expect now. And so, I mean, just a wild variety, whether the, the Iranian elections of 2000, the Albanian elections of 2009, and yet, by the same token, a little fishing village in upstate New York that needed economic development. But the first thing they told me was, don't scare the fish. We want economic development, but we want it. We, um, are you old enough to remember the Dave Clark Five? <laughs> they came out with the Beatles. The name of the place is, I like it like that. That was, nobody ever called the Dave Clark Five, but that was one thing that came to mind when I did that study 32 years ago. So that's what it is, just a whole lot of projects, including some of the ones that didn't work so hot that I learned from. So when people do polling or do surveys, what common mistakes you see people often do that uh, they can avoid? I think sometimes there's too great a reliance on random probability sampling, which in election polling sometimes leaves you with political party identification that are skewed. Generally speaking, too many Democrats too few Republicans in that sample, which means that it's lacking a sense of reality. And political party identification is, is a driving force in people. If I identify myself as a Democrat, there's an 80, 90% chance I'm gonna vote or lean or identify with Democratic issues and Democratic candidates. If I'm overrepresenting Democrats in my sample, underrepresenting Republicans, I'm going to get skewed, skewed results. And I think that's been one of the real ironies in my life. I, I am a progressive Democrat, and yet I became a poster child for the right wing in the 1990s that loved my polls because I was creating, a, I was weighting up the numbers of Republicans and my sample to be properly representative. And I was getting them right and getting them right and getting them right. And a few pollsters followed 
that lead. Others chose rather to attack it and say that it was unscientific. Mm. So you're in the world of marketing. Do you remember Charlie the Tuna? Mm -hmm. That commercial, Star Kiss Tuna? Yeah. He was always dressed to the, the gills and uh, sunglasses. He wanted to be a Star Kiss Tuna. And the tagline at the end always is, sorry, Charlie, Star Kiss wants tunas, don't want tunas that with good taste. They want tunas that taste good. Tastes good, yeah. <laughs> so other cultures were doing them right, but getting them wrong. Apparently, I was doing them wrong and getting them right. But I think that's fair Looking back in your career, uh, are there some highlights that really fueled your passion for conducting opinion research? Well, I've got to say the 1996 presidential election. I, I got the results there, not only got them to the tenth of a percent, you know, and that uh, there's divine intervention involved in that when that happens, but everybody else got it hugely wrong. And so that that certainly was a high point for me coming back to the 2000 election being the only one showing Al Gore winning the popular vote. Nobody else had that. That validated everything. But there are high points. Honestly, I love it when I can go into a school district and identify an issue that if I don't identify it can metastasize and create a real problem for not only today, but for a generation. And then to be able to sit down with leaders and with parents and with students and say, here's step-by-step step how you change your course. So there are lots of examples of, and I, they're all in the, in, in the manuscript. Oh, good. I don't know when the book's coming out, but hopefully in 2022, it, it's done. It's now we're shopping it around. Okay. So I'm curious, are you in a position to give us some insights as to what to expect in the upcoming uh, midterm elections, as well as even potentially the next uh, presidential election for the U.S.? Sure. As long as everybody realizes that I get to renew these every few months or so, because sure. as you know, you know, I used to say anything can happen. Well, oh, yeah. when Donald Trump was elected, anything happened. I mean, that was, <laughs> wow. So anything can happen. Today, the Republicans would win control of the House of Representatives and pick up a few seats in the U.S. Senate. Democratic Party is split. I don't have to list inflation, the stolen election idea, the uh, critical race theory, those kinds of issues that are being used against uh, Democrats. The built-in structure of the House of Representatives that favors Republicans and the degree to which Democrats are sanctimonious and didactic as they approach people. By the same token, the Republicans face some serious problems that could uh, undo them. One of which is obviously this notion of a stolen election and the conspiracy theory bound that abounds. That probably will continue to be an automatic 42% of the vote for Republican candidates, even going into 2024. But the more they, the party goes down that road, the less chance they have of getting the, the next nine or 10% 
that they need to win elections. And so uh, that's why I think we're in a very dynamic situation. You see the Republican Party uh, splitting and splitting over, over this issue. There's a lot going on. One of the things that I, I did have noticed is that some Republicans, including Donald Trump, are now getting double-digit support among blacks. Democrats need every black vote that they could get. Now, 11% of the black vote for Republicans is not good. But when you have states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and North Carolina, states that are so razor thin in, in determining the winner, then while a few thousand black votes going to the Republican side could really uh, turn the tables. So today, score for the Republicans, but it, this isn't over. I'm curious, what impact do you think this invasion that's going on in the Ukraine and also what's happening with the news outlets in Russia, how is that, I guess, uh, affecting the view of what's been happening in, in the U.S. and about the election being stolen and, and the various things, you know, with what's happening with our news as well in, in the U.S.? Wow, there's a lot of questions there. I'm going to deal with each one. Well, first of all, I'm glad you asked that because that is one of the things that's tearing the Republican Party apart. You know, the uh, Trump and the MAGA followers have leaned towards Putin in their desire to be America first and to be isolationist. They've really tilted overboard to the point where among them, Putin is regarded as 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 clever as a good operator but as somebody that we're not going to challenge on the other hand i think that putin has has created a sense of national unity in this country that we haven't seen before and a global restoration of the view of the united states of america worldwide we may be limited we are limited what we can do militarily but the U.S. still kind of represents a moral force, or America represents a, a moral force to people. So that's one piece of it. And I think it's all age groups, and I think it benefits Joe Biden. It will benefit Joe Biden that we're not going to war, because people who are watching closely understand, look, bombing feels good, you know, for six, eight, 10 hours. But the impact of that can be devastating. Absolutely. Not the least of which is devastating. Yeah. Uh, World yeah. War III. Yeah. The second piece of it is that there's turmoil in Russia. And I think that as we're beginning to see, there's turmoil in the presidential suite there. You know, there are reports of a possible coup or possible poisoning of Vladimir Putin, not that we that we see Russia get anybody a better, you know, there there is not a Thomas Jefferson uh, waiting in the wings, but probably somebody who's rational, awful, autocratic, but rational. And this invasion just made absolutely no sense whatsoever to Russia at all, making less sense every day. They can't afford a war of attrition because they've got moms and dads right over there that that don't want it they've got one would think hundreds of thousands of people thousands being arrested so i wouldn't be surprised if you saw a russian spring 
of some sort, and then some, some chaos. And then maybe there was a third question to that. No, I think you covered. I think it's interesting. I think this is this could be one of those uh, events that can really change things quite a bit as well. You know, like you, everyone's kind of going in one direction, but all of a sudden an event like this occurs on a worldwide level, you know, I mean, also on the heels of COVID, that could really change things in, a, in another direction for sure. So only time will tell. Yeah, it really can. And, and especially with, you know, we are in the midst of a revolution. All of our old institutions uh, do not offer the comfort and security that people are looking for. And so we're in this very difficult period of creative destruction. They are falling apart. You know, you tick them off, not only government, not only politics, you know, the church, you know, not only attendance, but the leadership and hierarchy, so on, the Boy Scouts, uh, you, you name it. Who do young people trust? I mean, I'm a father and a grandfather, uh, what do I say? They'll go talk to your priest? No, I think that's the last person I want to send them to, you know? But with that said, what will emerge is better. It's just, wow, we got to live through this first. Yeah, going through the transition. <laughs> Before the transition. And it's hard. It's very hard. What do you see on the horizon that you think is going to impact the way research will be conducted in the future? Do you know, obviously there's big data. And then we get into brainwave data. Then we get into the computer chip right in the brain where you, you go, you'd go down the supermarket like this and your groceries are bought. Although I'd love to see the technology where after the groceries are purchased, a robot picks them up, takes them home, and puts them away in their shelves. Now that will be a revolution. But seriously, there'll be that capacity. But I like to call what we do small data. I don't think it's ever going to replace you and I talking to each other, getting a handle on what really, what's important. What, I mean, I could look at your credit card purchases, you know, or a robot can look at your credit card purchases and tell a lot of stuff about you, but I'm pointing to my heart. It's never going to get there. That's going to require humanness. That's why I don't believe that, you know, what old polling and focus group company is going to go out of fashion. In fact, business pretty good, to tell you the yeah, truth. I agree. Uh, is there an area of polling or research that you would still like to delve into uh, further and why? Yeah. My third book was about America's neo-tribes and how uh, rather than us sitting around a conference table saying, let's test this, let's test that, what we did was we created a typology completely blank slate from the bottom up. We ask people, what's the motto that defines your life? What are the two most defining moments in your life? What brand speaks to you? If you could summarize your aspirations in one sentence, what would, that sort of thing. We tabulated all those on sheets of paper the hard way, came up with 11 neo-tribes. We unfortunately put it on hold. Business got busier and we just didn't have the bandwidth to continue. But I think, you know, our preliminary studies showed that, that these self-identified tribes that were based on character traits and aspirations were more predictive of behavior than uh, factors like race and, and income and religion and so on. Interesting. I'd love to pursue that, but time, time is the issue. Yeah. So who in the world of market research or polling would you love to have lunch with and why? 
Well, honestly, somebody that I know quite well. I, I like Frank Luntz. I like Frank Luntz a lot. Uh, Republican, pollster. I would say that I agree with Frank on things maybe 2% of the time. But I also like the fact that, you know, I'm a maverick in this business. And Frank's a maverick in the business. And he and I have always gotten along when we've chatted in a hotel lobby or at a back of the room at when we're giving presentations. And um, I find him fascinating. And I've, I've read his books. So yeah, I'm going to go with Frank Luntz. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate you talking to me, John. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to seeing, uh, you know, what polling results come out for the upcoming elections and various issues. And I look forward to continuing our conversation. Yeah, I hope so. Maybe when the book comes out, we can get more specific. Sounds great. I look forward to seeing it. Hey, thanks again. Thank you. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.